Okay, well, hello, David. Thank you so much for being here on another episode of The Makeup Historian. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to talk with me. Thank you, thank you, happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, so I asked you on today because we're gonna talk about money, wanna learn more about finances. And from, I've heard quite a bit about you, but I'm excited about today because I wanna, you know, to learn how you really got your education about finances and what you've been able to do at such a young age. It's, it's fascinating to me, I won't lie. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Okay. So the first thing I want to know, um, you have a company called TikTok, right? Not to be confused with the app. <laughs> yes. Spelled T-I-C-T-O-C. And it's an acronym, right? Mm -hmm. so, so what TikTok does it stand for? Yeah. It stands for today's investment commitment, tomorrow's optimal commodity. Wow. I like that. That's nice. So what, what is the story behind it? How did you like what inspired you to found that and what exactly does TikTok do? So I started TikTok when I was in my freshman year of high school. I believe I was 14 at the time. Um, I started it because I wanted to teach students how to be able to make enough through trading stocks or anything for that matter in the investment world and make enough to pay for college. Wow, that's really impressive. Was there something that happened that kind of made you realize college was perhaps a tad bit too expensive or was there something in your personal life that it really inspired you to learn more about this? Yeah. So overall, I got into investing when I was 13 because I had no money to pay for college at all. So I saw my dad trading one day. I teased him on his trading because it didn't look too good. He gave me a thousand dollars to trade with. And he said, uh, why don't you give it a try for yourself, hot shot? So then with that thousand dollars, I made enough to pay for, you know, uh, I want to say enough to pay for half the college at any university I would have wanted to attend to within that first year in eighth grade. So I thought, you know, well, this is really easy. <laughs> Why don't I teach everyone how to do this? So then that's kind of what transitioned to me. But then I felt like my trading was doing so well with everything that I really didn't need to go to college anymore because I felt like more the more I looked into it, there wasn't really anything that I could learn from college that I didn't already know or that I wouldn't be able to learn from teaching myself or that I couldn't get from a mentor who is in that field. I'll be real with you. I agree with you 100% on that. The most, and I'm, I, I didn't know that you did that when you were in eighth grade. That's very impressive. Uh, the most I remember from like seventh and eighth grade was I got my first iPod and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Um, I wasn't figuring out a way to pay for half of my college education. So that's very, very impressive. So you didn't end up going to college, obviously. You didn't need to. <laughs> yeah, but with that, I still pursued some things in the education field. I read a lot, a okay. lot of econ books. Um, I actually bought five Milton Friedman books recently on like stuff that nobody else probably wants to read but me um, <laughs> like on quantity supply of money uh, the theory of uh, supply side economics uh, that one is not by Milton Friedman that's by Dr. R. Laffer um, and then a bunch of Paul Krugman books too uh, Austrian economics. Mm. So uh, this actually isn't one of the questions that I sent you but now that we're talking I'm, I'm curious do you have any suggestions about 
how maybe we can improve the financial education for students within our education system right now, because it's, it's not given to students. I know that firsthand. The most that I was ever taught about legitimate finances was how to write a check. And that was in high school. Yep. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I was never, you know. They don't even teach that in high school now. <laughs> well, that's scary. <laughs> yeah, very scary. Yeah, but I, I really have to do... just ask for help with the bank. Yeah, no, and I, I really respect your tenacity and grit to go figure things out on your own because, you know, I, I don't know as much as you do about finances, but I kind of had to do the same thing for what I do know. I had to go seek out those sources as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, based on your experience, do you think there's a way that we can improve that within our education system or? So I've actually, for as long as I've been building my program. So my program actually teaches students how to trade stocks, Forex, options, real estate, cryptocurrency. We teach them the basics and then we teach them the medium level and then we teach them the advanced. And we pretty much bring them all the way through everything that there is to know that's important at least. If it's not important and it can't make you money and it doesn't hold up, we don't teach it. Um, <laughs> So over the past seven years, that's what I've really been building is my curriculum. And so we've packaged my curriculum right now. And at the moment, we're trying to put that into the school system through um, the Orange County school system. Um, I've been in talks with some of the trustees and then some school districts and everything like that. So that's something that I'm going to be trying to push for in the new year. Because I want to, and I'm not going to put everything, I'm not going to be putting like a credit default swaps into the high school system, right? <laughs> I'm going to be putting in my basics, which is like stocks, uh, Forex and crypto, because I think, because in Forex, you know, there's a lot of indicators on what's the Federal Reserve, how does central banking affect everything? What do these indicators around the world, how does that come back and affect me, Right. And then crypto, because it's up and coming and there's a lot of things that have to do with it that are going to be useful and necessary for people that are growing up in the Generation Z environment. But overall, I'm putting that into basics because I think that's really important. And then as an elective, if somebody wants to pursue that after, so the base will be a requirement. And mm -hmm. then after that, as an elective after, if somebody really wants to pursue that, then they'll go into stuff like real estate, they'll go into you know, stock options, derivatives, and then stocks advance, which is then they'd get to stuff like credit default swaps and like other types of contingent options or contingent uh, derivatives when it comes to everything like that. Um, but then after that too, we want to help students get their licenses. So like their series 65, their series seven, their SI. If you have a series 65, you can go to any firm really, and they will pay you a minimum of $95,000 to $110,000 right off the bat starting, because then you build your way up and people and who have a 65, you know, they make up to a couple million per year just off the base alone and not even making profit for the company. Wow. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, I love that you're doing that let me say that and if you need help with anything in regards to education please let me know because I think that is could be really helpful for students and I like the the model you know kind of the base curriculum and then giving some um extra classes if if a student desires to have that because that would be yeah that'd be helpful 
<laughs> yeah, then I'm always open to ideas too, because obviously, you know, my background isn't I'm an educator, like I'm only 20. I never went to school to become a teacher <laughs> or anything like that. So anyone who is in that space, you know, obviously knows how a learning environment is better, much more than I. Um, but I've only just been building off of how I see my students' attention spans and everything like that and what clicks best because I don't try and make everything complicated. I think once you start making things complicated, that's when you get poor students. That's when you overcomplicate material where it's not useful, it's not applicable. And like, for example, from I'm taking a master's program with MIT in finance, a master's in finance with them. And there's a lot of things that we're doing in the program where I just won't use this ever in my trading whatsoever. Maybe a quant who would work for me might need that um, mm -hmm. to be able to write formulas um, for codes and everything like that. But for me as a trader and running a hedge fund, I would just never use any of the material I'm learning. It's interesting, kind of, don't get me wrong, but it's just, <laughs> it's useless. And that's like how I view a lot of education right now is that if it's not useful, why is it being taught or why yeah why is it being taught if it's not useful in a sense i agree with you and i i would say for me i think what bugs me especially i kind of tend to butt heads a little bit with some of my fellow professors in regards to how we teach adults you know there's the traditional format of you do a lecture for several hours do a multiple choice test or a paper and that's it and i don't think that works at all, except with millennials, especially with Gen Z, but just teaching adults in general, I think you really have to give them opportunities in the classroom, in a sense, to opportunities to fail. You know, you have to kind of yep. give them an opportunity right then and there to apply what you just taught them. And I think that's what helps them get like those real marketable skills. And the curriculum you're talking about, that would be an easy pairing right there to give them exactly. real life scenarios of, because I'm the same way. I don't pay for a class unless I know what I'm going to do with it. If there's a real exactly. life like application here. <laughs> so I totally get it. I think that's great. And I didn't know that you were at that program at MIT. So congratulations. That's really cool. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I actually, um, I've taken a pause on my programs there, though, because I'm also doing one in data, economic development and policy, because that kind of ties into how my group is international. Um, because I like to see how I can influence developing nations by teaching financial literacy to students, and what that's going to come in the next 10 years, who knows. Um, but so I've taken a pause on both of those, because from my perspective, it would be really negligent to my investors if I was doing two big master's programs while managing their money, you know, like when you're managing someone's money, they want you to just be married to their money and their money only. <laughs> it makes sense. You know, I think that's you being very respectful. And, you know, looking back, if I could talk to my younger self, like I powered through my master's program to the point where it kind of I'd sacrificed like <laughs> my own well being at times. So I, I don't think pressing pause during a program is bad at all. You know, it's, it's the marathon. It's not the race. Yep. And you, you have like the, the vision, you know, what you're going to do with it. You're, you have a job outside of academia. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> because for the programs and everything that I do like that, I'm not doing it for a degree. A degree is just a piece of paper to me. I'm just doing it to see, you know, what the education is, what people are learning, what the people that I might be hiring are learning. So I could know alongside them, things like that. But at the end of the day, I, I think a degree now from academia and everything like that, the knowledge that's being taught just seems archaic to me. 
in a sense, like we were saying. And it's not about a piece of paper doesn't define someone now, I think. I think it's what the metal of their character is and what they really know. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Because even some of my fellow millennials, um, I know far too many of them who did the program, got the degrees, and then were kind of like, well, where's my full-time job and salary and yeah. benefits? <laughs> you know, like, it's not there. And what I, you know, what I honestly think students should know is that the degree it opens the door. It helps get your, mm. you know, get you the interview, but you get yourself the job based off of how exactly. you market your education, right? And especially in history, which is totally different from <laughs> finances. Um, but it that was a big thing. We weren't teaching history students how to market their education. So yeah. that was a big problem and why people constantly say you're not going to have a lucrative career if you get a degree in history. Well, I think it comes down, like you were saying, to the person. How do they market it? How do they, you know, know how to pitch what they bring to the table? So yep. but that's something that I think applies to all fields. <laughs> I think history is actually one of the more applicable fields. At least I think it does connect to finance a lot or at least economics, because I use history all the time because in finance and the markets, especially history always repeats itself. Like mm -hmm. um, for the situation right now, I think we're going to be going through a style of uh, second grade depression. And that's a, a term I coined and I know nobody wants to hear a great depression on the rise, but uh, it's, it's coming. <laughs> and um, yeah. with that, like I look at all the factors that affected back then, because you have to, like uh, you have to look at, for example, what did the Federal Reserve do in the 1980s? You know, how did Paul Volcker run stuff like that? You know, what happened with Russia and Crimea? Will that happen again with Ukraine? You know, it's mm -hmm. looking at all these factors and how those affect the financial markets too, because, you know, everything repeats. Yeah, and something I even tell my own students all the time is that when we take away all of the, the nonsense of today, like all of the noise, the political polarization, or the very emotionally charged responses to kind of social issues right now, if you really want to know the true story, if you really want to know history, you always follow the money. And that's just not yep. American history. That's world history. So that's where you get the true narrative. <laughs> it's very 100%. simple. <laughs> so I'm glad that you it's, said uh, that. <laughs> it's the most telling thing in the world, what the, where the money trails go. Because <laughs> yeah. people might say one thing, but then if the money trail goes somewhere else, that's what's really going on. <laughs> that tells you who someone really is. You know, what they stand for, stand against, follow the money. And same thing with the government. <laughs> Exactly. follow the money. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've, you've mentioned um, a few times you've talked about cryptocurrency and I know that in academia, especially within my departments, I tend to be the annoying person who is like, well, cause I'm, I'm focusing in museum studies and I love talking about museum theory, but then I'm also the kind of annoying person in the program who is like, but how do we keep the lights on? You know, like we can talk about different types of museums all day long, but how are we going to give people jobs? How are we going to actually be able to support this financially? And I am one of those people who likes cryptocurrency and believes in it. But one of the big kind of pushback within the departments that I'm involved in is the legitimacy factor. So you're very involved in crypto. Why do you think that this is, why is crypto legitimate? So I think crypto is legitimate because it's transparent. And I say that because 
every single thing is recorded on the blockchain. And that's crypto in its most base form. With there too, you get a bunch of opportunities from lending and building on projects and providing power in some instances. Um, like there's one cryptocurrency where it uses the blockchain to provide power to towns. And so it's things like that, providing internet access with cryptocurrency and just doing so many things that it eliminates the layers. If you pull let's if you pull back something and get to all its core, that's what you have with crypto. You have just the core. You don't have any of the banks. You don't have, you know, any of the governments. You just have the core where it's the actual utility that you're trying to get from something. I don't like Bitcoin though. Bitcoin is only popular because it's the first. It okay. really has no utility to it. I like <laughs> Ethereum because of the smart contracts, but even Ethereum's archaic now because oh, there's really? so many other okay. better protocols than Ethereum. <laughs> um, Ethereum introduced the smart contracts, which gave it the utility because that's what a lot of other cryptocurrencies are built off because the smart contract shows the conversion on top of the blockchain. So it's a layer on the blockchain in a sense. Okay. Now, with other things like a Cardano, that offers um, proof of stake mechanism. So proof of work mechanism is that's computing power to unlock the blockchain. And that's why you see all these crypto mines in a sense. But then you have the proof of stake system where the blockchains don't unlock to put more coins into the economy, right? Unless money is staked. So nobody's going to go and put, you know, a couple billion dollars all at once and stake that and I'm trying to unlock everything. And even if it did, there's an algorithm to prevent it from unlocking everything to flood the economy. So there's mechanisms like that in place. But with Bitcoin, let's say that quantum computing exists and the whole blockchain gets mined instantly. All that Bitcoin is out there all at once. And, you know, supply and demand, if the supply shoots up a bunch, supply shock and the demand still stays the same, the price goes down. <laughs> so it's reasons like that. Crypto is always evolving. People are finding new methods and it's all group confidence. You know, it's like anything. If there's no confidence in something, the product's going to die. It's gone. Right. But if there's confidence in something and it keeps trying, that's the only reason why the U.S. dollar is, you know, running and everything like that is because there's group confidence in the dollar or that our treasury backs it right now. But there's nothing really backing it because the treasury, they're just using fiat and the current demand that everyone's just using it right now. But like my, my end goal for the U.S. dollar, at least, is I want to go back to gold standard, but not just gold, but backed by palladium and other precious metals just to make sure it's back. Because I think fiat is kind of, for lack of a better word, iffy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah. um, so with crypto... Though it's transparent, has group confidence, and if people believe in it, why would we suppress them? You know, if people want to convert in that, it's like if somebody wanted to use, I don't know, Pokemon cards to give you for something <laughs> else. You know, it's all the barter system at its core. So if there's volume there, then it exists. But um, that's the trading aspect. But the utility aspect, that's where you get all the projects and decentralized finance, eliminating the the institutions that put on all the extra taxes and everything like that. And it's mm -hmm. just peer to peer. You don't have to deal with anybody else. And I think that's the most peer in a sense. And if we can keep that safe and make sure that there's no bad intervention or bad players in there, then that's what we need. As long as we're improving upon the safety of the blockchain, I think that's what's necessary for it. Yeah. Well, I know that a lot of people in the crypto world tend to disagree on whether I think there's some people who still believe fiat currency will 
live on. And then I think there's others who are like 100% crypto and they think fiat currency is going to die out. Where do you align with that debate? Well, a lot of crypto is fiat currency. <laughs> so, <laughs> crypto, and there's, you know, there's cryptos that are layers of fiat. So, there's cryptos that are backed by cryptos, there's cryptos that are backed by currencies. And there's one crypto that I'm working on that's backed by something, but I'm not allowed to say what it is right now <laughs> until it's uh, fully out. But um, we're working with uh, the regulators on that right now. And it's a type of security coin, but I'm just not allowed to say what it's backed by. But it's something that everyone wants and that's not going anywhere either. So it's a <laughs> stable backing because I don't believe in fiat. Um, for the types of fiats that do exist, though, my whole study that I've been conducting for crypto theory that I've been writing is how do they survive in the long run and what's the best mechanism for backing things like that? Is it do we keep an unlimited supply? Do we keep a bonding curve type of supply? Do we uh, keep a regulated and manipulatable supply? What do you do? So there's a lot of different debates out there. And who's to say who's right until we see the full results? Yeah. I agree with that 100%. And I, I actually think, doesn't MIT have a really good like history of money class? And I think it might even be free on YouTube right now. I'm I think sure. so. I know they have a blockchain society now. I'm actually friends oh. with some of the people who teach that. I've taught them some things. Oh, well, that's cool. <laughs> but they don't offer any degrees from that. If they did, I would get it instantly. <laughs> Yeah. So I actually read um, an article about you not too long ago where you started talking a little bit about how you think maybe like Newport Beach area might be a new financial hub. What did, what did you mean by that? <laughs> so do you know where the Mariner's Mile Strip is? No. <laughs> or like Five Elbow Bay Club? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that whole strip over there, I think there's a lot of properties that either shouldn't be there or don't bring a lot of business to the area or could be done better or developed into better use uses, okay. right? It's the opportunity cost. If they just sit there, we lose all the opportunity costs of everything else. So mm -hmm. I want to develop a financial hub along that strip. And in a sense, I want to create the Wall Street of the West. So wow. I've been talking with developers and everything and uh, banks and whatnot. And the first thing I want to build there is I'd like to build a high rise over there. And yes, I've already been talking with people like the Coastal Commission, because if you don't get the Coastal Commission back in, you're not getting anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I talked with a lot of developers and I've kind of laid out my plan, but I'd like to build a high rise and have the bottom floor be the first um, in-person stock, not stock exchange, but in-person crypto exchange and have a stock exchange with there too. That way people wow. can physically see what the prices are and trade in person on it. Um, to get better order execution, everything like that, and get better latency in a sense, and just make a hub for things like that as a centralized exchange. Because I am working on a centralized exchange, I would be um, the eighth centralized exchange in the world for cryptocurrency, which means I would be backed and working with the government for that type of exchange. That's really cool. I didn't know that you were working on that. I'm going to have to yep. keep up with you on that. <laughs> And we actually talked a few months ago about endowments. You said that you were, I think, either going to start a training about endowments or where are you with that? Because I, I want to touch base. That was fascinating to me. Yeah, so I'm not fully knowledgeable on endowments. Like I said, I'm just starting my studies into the Kaya. That's one of the units, but I'm not at that unit yet. Okay. <laughs> well, then that'll be the next interview. I've <laughs> learned more about endowments because <laughs> that's, I definitely need some help with that one. Um, 
But another, so for people looking to get into or trying to get more financial literacy, what would you recommend? Like, where do they start? Because honestly, it can, it can feel like a really daunting project when you kind of start to research um, finances. So what would you recommend? Where, where's a good place to start? I mean, I don't mean to showboat my own program, but I would say to start on <laughs> hey, my <that's> program. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I started my program because there was nothing else out there. There was nothing I found that was better. Um, I don't see really any competitors to my program either. I've looked. There's nobody who caters to teaching young generations on how to trade. There's stuff out there, but that's just teaching, oh, taxes. And they'll charge, like, these companies will charge a couple thousand dollars. I charge $35 a month to learn wow. everything. Everything is all included with that $35 a month because I am I still want students to have enough money to actually be able to trade in their accounts. You know, yeah. if somebody's going and paying a couple thousand dollars for a program, where are they going to have the money to actually trade with? Mm-hmm. Well, so, so how do people really get a hold? Where do they find more information about your program? I've seen some of your actual, it's funny, like your TikTok videos about your TikTok, but... <laughs> But where I'm guessing you have a central website where they can buy all of this and, you know, kind of break it down for us. Where do we learn more about your company, TikTok? Yeah, so my website is tiktokclub.com, T-I-C-T-O-C-C-L-U-B.com. And then there's a registration button right on the front page. Nice. I might have to sign up myself and check this out because this is (laughs) fascinating. (laughs) And I don't, you know, I think... Pride sometimes is highly overrated. I don't care how old someone is. If you know how to do it, you know how to do it. And millennials, <laughs> sorry. I can actually <laughs> guarantee too that after week 12 of my program, somebody has more knowledge than a managing director on Wall Street. So how the levels go on Wall Street is it goes the analyst, it goes the lead analyst, And then sometimes it goes portfolio managers, but at the overall top of those groups down there, it's the managing director. So anyone below those knows nothing and the managing director, they really know nothing. They don't know any multiples. They don't know any fundamental analysis. They don't even really know um, base technical analysis of what a support line or a resistance level are, or at least they're not good at it. (laughs) But they really just listen to the guy at the top and the guy at the top doesn't know any of the research either. They, these firms on Wall Street, they give all these uh, ratings to companies. Uh, and it's kind of like the shady stuff they did in 2008 where uh, on the mortgages, right? On the mortgage-backed securities, they would give a rating to something because if that ratings agency didn't give a rating, they're just going to go to the other ratings agency and the other ratings agency will give that rating that they're looking for. So for example, if you see that something's a neutral rating, it's usually not good on Wall Street, or even if it's a buy rating, it's not good because they're just trying to get the business of those companies. So those companies will work with them to push their stock and do an IPO or anything like that, or do an investment banking campaign with that company to bring them traction so they can work with them. The only time you will see uh, a bad rating that's actually useful is when a big uh, bank says a sell rating. That's when you actually know it's going down because then they're just saying it's bad and they're not going to get that person's business, right? But if it just says neutral or buy, usually those still indicate bad because they just want the person's business. Mm. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a whole mess. It is. And I've, I've, I think myself and, you know, a lot of millennials, we have 
I'll just be blunt about it. I feel like we were really screwed over in regards to finances, but there are some millennials who I think kind of take the, you know, the victim mentality of, okay, oh my gosh, this happened to us and this happened to us. And then I think there are other millennials who are like, Hey, I don't care who has the answers. Let's try to figure it out. And that's, let's get better. So that's yeah. where, you know, I don't like when people complain, but they never really try to fix the problem. So as a millennial who was hit really hard with financial struggles, I appreciate what you're doing a lot by being transparent and educating people about finances. So I have, I have two more questions for you. Um, something that I'm really passionate about is trying to help people who have been in domestic violence situations or emotionally abusive relationships, trying to help get them more education about financial literacy. Because in those situations, especially for women, one of the number one reasons a person will stay in a bad relationship is because they are financially dependent. And especially for the ladies, we really are not taught in our education system to advocate for ourselves in regards to finances or financial education. So for women who, you know, this may be a little bit daunting, I know you mentioned your club or your, your business, but what would be some other advice that you would give to the ladies who are trying to get that, that confidence to really learn more about finances? Well, I think understanding investments and everything like that is the ultimate shackle breaker. It really breaks the power structure because it allows somebody to be financially independent without even having another job if they wanted to, in a sense. If people understand finance, they can get a job if they're good at it. And it's really not that hard. Finance is the most, and investing really, it's the easiest thing in the world, but it's not taught, which is the problem, right? <laughs> but it really comes yeah. down to, oh, like I'll give an example on how easy it is. Let's say you know everybody bought the new iPhone, right? And the Apple stock is trading kind of low right now. So the solution is you buy Apple stock and when the earnings report comes out to show that everybody did buy the iPhone on the numbers report, then it'll go up then. And then you mm -hmm. sell it. And it's really that easy. And you can do that for every company. If you think it was bad, you can also bet against it. You can short the market. And most people don't know that you can bet against the market. But going back to that, Understanding finance lets you do anything with you, you want with your life. Like I said, if you have a Series 65 license or a financial license, you can get paid six figures right off the bat at these firms if you just have a base concept of what you're doing. If you're really good at it, they'll pay you a lot more than that, right? But if you have a base understanding of investments and financial knowledge and everything like that, you can do whatever you want. Because, you know, with a $100,000 salary, you, you don't need anybody else. You're fine on your own, right? <laughs> Yeah, you're Even pretty 70 good. To 90, <laughs> you're good. Mm -hmm. No, thank you. I appreciate that a lot. And to kind of, you know, conclude our interview, I'm curious, I, I always like to, you know, bring it back to history, because the goal is to preserve the, the beauty and blemishes of history. But for those who listen to this interview down the road, what do you want future generations to remember about the economic realities of, of America? of the world right now in the beginning of the, the 2020s. <laughs> I want people to know that March 2020 was not caused by COVID at all. I want them to know that the yield curve is really the most true indicator of everything that's going to happen in the market that has happened and that will happen. And that's all based off the interest rates because the central bank really controls where the market goes with quantitative easing and pushing up the economy and letting the economy fall because as long as they're holding it up, 
that same amount that they hold it up is the same amount of time and bubble that grows that's going to pop in a sense and let the market fall down harder. So when things look like they're being held up, they're really not being held up. It's just stalling time for a bigger problem and they're creating a bigger problem by doing that. We have to let markets fall so that they can recover because in a sense, that's the natural selection of the market. The problems that we have coming on our to-do list are <laughs> inflation, higher unemployment that's gonna be coming because a lot of the jobs that they said have been coming in and I will come back, half of those jobs haven't come back and erased mm -hmm. and a lot of new jobs aren't being created. The ones that they say are out there really are not out there because there's a skill gap. Those jobs that they're asking that are back are high skill paying jobs. They're not blue collar jobs that just anybody can pick up. They're high skill paying jobs. So if somebody doesn't fit that niche like a programmer, they're not gonna get that job. So we have high unemployment on the rise. We have a uh, massive overconfidence that the markets can just keep going forever and that money printing will happen. Um, and then we had the overproduction already, which is a factor of a depression. And that overproduction was with uh, oil back uh, over in February. And that was the trigger on the yield curve. So mm -hmm. that oil is why the market fell because the oil companies, they have stock accounts, right? They don't hold their money just in cash. They're not dumb, they hold in stocks. So when oil became negative, they're obligated to pay, they were obligated to pay that money to the people taking their oil from them because they had a futures contract. So mm -hmm. in the futures contract with the CME, which is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, it says that whatever the price is, they're usually paid that and they have to get that. Or, but since it was negative, they had to give that instead. So when they had to give that, they didn't have that money on hand. They had to sell their stocks. So by them selling their stocks to cover that, because if they didn't cover that, they're committing fraud and then they go to jail. So by them covering that, that's why the market fell because it was their big sell-off. But that wasn't the big problem that we fixed. We still have all the other problems that we have yet to face. One of them being the loan bubble. So that's the student loan bubble, the corporate debt bubble, and the SBA slash PPP loan bubble. So for two quarters at a conservative default rate, we will have $180 billion defaulted from the SBA loans and the PPP loans. Because it's not like we were really checking on who was getting these loans. We were pretty much saying, oh, if you apply for it, we're going to give you that loan, right? Because yeah. I know almost everyone from here to there that really does nothing, they got the loans, right? And so when people say there's loan forgiveness as a company, that really counts as a negative number on a balance sheet of a company or a bank. So mm -hmm. the Federal Reserve takes 95% of that loss and the banks take 5% of that loss of 180 billion for two quarters. And the number might be bigger now. Last time I checked this, this was in August. So wow. that number probably grew since then. Now, <laughs> so that 95% loss taken down by the Federal Reserve, they're only tapering right now, like tapering is slowing down the printing of money, right? So they're only slowing down on the printing of money because they've run out of money that they can push into the economy. So since they've run out of money and then they're also gonna take that massive default on their balance sheet, that's gonna look really, really bad for them as well as the banks taking that 5%, that's mainly taken up by the big, the big banks, right? Mm -hmm. So if we have that, I'm looking at around March again of this year is when we're really gonna have bigger downturns, but I'm even looking at January right around the corner with inflation being the correction because inflation, it's leading and lagging in a sense. 
the CPI shows us what's already happened for the previous month. But if you track CPI and find the residual, which I have been for the past couple months, you see what's coming. We're going to have double digit inflation come to, I want to say May to July within that period. So right around June, we'll have double digit inflation. We're going to be worse than the Carter administration because we have way worse problems than the Carter administration, which already sounds bad in its sense. Yes. Um, for gas prices, they're going to shoot up too because the Exxon Mobil um, refinery blew up in Texas, which that hasn't even been covered on the news yet. It's been covered in some articles. It's not on the news yet, though. Nobody else has seen it, but they're going to see it at the pump soon. Mm. Um, and with that, so all these problems are going to be coming. We're probably going to be at around 8% inflation in January. And that's not fun either, right? But so... People, if they, people know inflation's coming, they start buying things that they need right now. Like if they need appliances direly, they're going to start buying them right now, right? Because mm -hmm. they know that the price is going to go up. So when they buy them now, and then when the price goes up and they don't buy it, that's an immediate shock to the economy because nobody else is going to be buying things then. That's yeah. why we have a little jump when we know inflation's high. But then after nobody's buying anymore, that jump goes away and we're back to a worse area before that. Wow. That's a lot, <laughs> yeah. but I'm glad that you, that you are saying that, that you're talking about it because we do need to be talking about the financial realities of our, of our Nobody country. else wants to talk about it because then that makes it real if they talk about that on the news. And if it's real in the short term, if it's coming, that that's going to spook people. And they don't want to spook people because then they don't get their management fee in the short term for their profits. And that's exactly why people don't like historians, because <laughs> we're those annoying people who are like, hey, remember what really happened? We're the conscience. <laughs> yeah, we're kind of like those annoying people who hold up the mirror and are like, this is what really happened. I think we might need to pay attention to this. The pattern is repeating, but but they don't like us. You know, it happens. But hopefully, hopefully the right people will hear this. And I think you're doing amazing things, especially by teaching people about finances and being so transparent and empowering about it. I really think that will help, especially in California, because it's a, it's a, it's interesting out here. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm not leaving because California needs the most help. <laughs> exactly. That's why I'm not leaving either. <laughs> Well, thank, thank you, you so much, David, for joining us here on The Makeup Historian. I really appreciate it. And I would love to have you back, um, especially as you continue on with your career and your business and your education. Anytime you want to come back, I would love to love to have you on the show again. Happy anytime.